Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning to all of those of you who are online joining us from your campsite or your cabin or wherever it is that you may be. Uh, the faithful here are gathered, and we are gathered online to worship the King Jesus, and uh, it's great that we can do that uh, together. We're starting our uh, summer series. Now, our preaching series, we kind of go through various different topics and whatever, and so this summer, uh, we're going to be looking at the book of Psalms. And uh, each week, uh, a different person is going to come up and speak on uh, a various uh, different, different uh, psalm. Uh, the psalms, uh, many of them stand alone, uh, but they end up coming together uh, to show us historically how the Israelite people worshipped. Kind of like a, a hymn book, for those of you that remember those. Uh, the hymn books uh, include songs that were written for us, you know, over a century or, or two, and they're kind of the collection of the songs that kind of made it, you know, and like they're the ones that made it into the book, and now it's all digital and online, and we have our, our list of songs that we end up uh, picking, and you can kind of be thinking, okay, what are your songs? Like, what are, what are, the, what are the psalms, what are the, the songs that you just kind of like go over and over in your head that made the, the book, your book of, of worship to God? You can be thinking about, about some of those. Uh, Psalms are, are a collection uh, of the, the Israelite worship, uh, and it's kind of tricky to date which psalm came in when and when it was written and whatever. Uh, you have Psalm 90 that was uh, uh, ascribed to Moses, so that's like 1,500 years before Jesus. Um, about half of the psalms are titled to David, King David, and uh, that's about 1,000 years uh, before Jesus. And then some of the most recent psalms are like two to three hundred years even before Jesus. And so they all kind of came together to make up the, the book in the Old Testament that, that we have now. Uh, the Psalms are, are sacred poems. They're, they're songs. Uh, we sing them, we recite them, we pray them. And as, as we do that now, we end up uh, joining the saints throughout history and declaring God's goodness and His, uh, his pr prayers for God's presence uh, there's so many things that are in there, prayers for healing, for justice, and uh, the Psalms focus on, on various different, different themes depending on the time that people are and what they're calling out to God. As we read these, uh, we, we join Moses, we, we join David, we join Peter, we join Paul, we join St. Augustine, we join Menno Simons, we join Martin Luther, Mother Teresa, Bono. Billions of others that have followed Yahweh for 3,500 years or so. The scholar N.T. Wright, he says that the Psalms are the steady, sustained subcurrent of healthy Christian living. They shape the praying and vocation even of Jesus himself. So through this series, this summer, we join Jesus of Nazareth. This was his hymnal. He would have used these prayers in his worship. So even though these are ancient poems, they guide us in worship because the common thread throughout the Psalms is the eternal presence and glory of God. So today, we're going to look at Psalm 2. I thought it would be appropriate to start with Psalm 1. Reg had other ideas, and he picked it first. 
Not that I'm bitter, but uh, sure didn't help when you start with Psalm 2 instead of Psalm 1, but I'll blame him for that, and you can send him an email or a nasty little message if you want. He's on holiday, so he's not going to look at it, so it doesn't matter. Before I read uh, this psalm, uh, let me give you a little bit of background. It'll, it'll help uh, us understand uh, this psalm and what you're hearing and what you, so that you can, you can get it maybe a little bit, a little bit more. Uh, psalm 2 is a really key psalm. It's positioned intentionally at the front. It's, it's a super important one. It's, it's one of the big ones, and yet how many of us are really all that familiar with it? It was likely used uh, as public worship when a king was being coronated. So we're not really familiar with that. We've had a queen, you know, in, in England that for however many years. Um, we don't really know what a coronation is. Maybe some of the older people uh, know what that looks like, but the younger ones, we don't really see that. We don't know that. Uh, it, this likely started, this psalm started with King David, uh, and it was used to coronate the king for probably up to about 500 years until the, t- the temple was destroyed. From, from David till the temple was about, uh, about 500 years, pem- temple being destroyed by the Babylonians. Uh, and then at that time, the Jews were exiled. And so then the Jews no longer had a king that was on the throne. And so then it became more of this, this prophetic psalm calling back for, for a king to come and sit on the throne of David and restore them to a place of significance in the world and glory in the world and that the world would recognize that they worship the true God. And so from, from 586, when the temple was destroyed and the Jews were in exile, till the time of Christ, it was more this like longing, hoping, coming of the Messiah. So, and then when Jesus came it was used to describe his kingly authority. And that's how we use it uh, today, and it's been used throughout the New Testament. So those are the three ways that I'm going to focus on understanding this psalm today, those, those three ways. One, when the king was on the throne. Two, when they anticipated a king to sit on the throne. And then three, uh, a psalm declaring that Jesus would always be king on the throne. So we'll start with the original use, uh, and then I'll read it in that context. Um, the original use of the psalm was to declare the king of Israel was the son of God. Okay, so to understand that line of the son of God, we have to go back to 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is God's promise to David. So uh, here we see God declaring the king as his son. So, uh, Nathan, the prophet, is speaking to David, uh, and here is what it says. Nathan says uh, to David, The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, and your own flesh and blood, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He's talking about Solomon. That's, that's uh, David's son. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That's a long time. How is one person doing that? Anyways, I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him, and the rod will be wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him. As I took it away from Saul, the former king before David, whom I removed before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. 
So from this, uh, this, this starting point with, with Nathan and, and David, the descendants of David became the successors of, to the throne. The future kings of Israel became known as sons of God. What have started with Solomon, who built the temple but was to be established forever, this unending kingdom. Kings were uh, to live out God's ways. The kings of, of uh, the Jewish kings, the Israelites, uh, were to live out God's ways. They were to rule in the way of God as sons. For those of you who have read the books of First and Second Kings, you'll notice that David's descendants didn't do a very good job of living out God's ways. There's a few little blips along the way where they kind of came back to him, but for the most part, there was a bunch of rotters out there uh, who were leading as, as kings. And yet this psalm, Psalm 2, was likely still used to declare their power at their coronation and to instill fear over all the other nations. They would use this psalm as the king was a entering into the, to his, his kingdom. He was being coronated. He was starting his rule. Um, as, you, as you hear this psalm read in its original tone, it might be helpful in our day and age to think of it as, as a team cheer. Even if the team is brutal. I, 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 was, I don't know if I'm appropriate, but like making some Toronto Maple Leafs fans uh, jokes here, uh, you know, like, Rah, rah, we're Canada's team. Yo, we're the best team. And it's like, when did you win the Stanley Cup? Like, okay, maybe you're decent this year, but you choked. You know, anyways, that's a whole aside uh, just to poke fun at a few. It's coming from a Canucks fan, so who am I? Uh, whatever. But think of, think of this as like this rah, rah, we're getting ready to rule kind of like team cheer before the big game. Um, this is how great we are. This is how great the king is. Um, that might be the, the tone, okay? So, as a new king's coronated, whether it's hot through the highs or the lows, they make themselves sound as powerful as the great Egyptians or the Assyrians or the Babylonians or the other, other powers of the day. Um, that's what Psalm 2 was. Uh, it's a declaration of how great and powerful their God was and how the king was the established leader to accomplish the ways of God and fully establish God's kingdom across the whole earth forever. Those who stand against them should be afraid. And that's what they believed for those 500 years from David till the, the fall of the temple through the peaks and valleys that came. So, I'm going to read Psalm 2, and I would, I would love it if, to, if you could stand if you're able um, and picture the coronation of the king. So, let's stand and picture the coronation of the king in Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them like pieces, like pieces, to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth. 
Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss this, his son or he will be angry and your way will lead to destruction for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Psalm 2. Please be seated. So as you hear it, Maybe it comes across better in Hebrew, but I don't think uh, I can speak it, or nor can you understand it for the most part. But you, you, get, you get this sense, or at least they would have got this sense of this chest-pounding, triumphant cheers, declaring the glory of God and the glory of His King, the Son of God. And all nations shall fear the greatness. Why are they even trying? So the psalm was heard probably from the time of David, about a thousand before Christ, to 586 when the temples destroyed and the Jews were sent into exile. So that's the first part. That's the way it was first understood. Leads us into the second way that it was understood. The temples destroyed, the Jews are taken into captivity, and they no longer have a king. Their kingdom is defeated. They weren't as great as they thought. No reference to the Leafs. But the faithful Israelites, they didn't give up. This psalm takes a twist. It it took on a new meaning. meaning. It becomes a psalm of hope. Other psalms clearly show that God has not abandoned them. They, They write that regularly. God has not abandoned us. And they call on God to provide a newly anointed one to give them freedom and to destroy their enemies. I'll give you a hint of where this is going. This, the, second, the second verse uh, in Psalm 2 talks about against the Lord and against his anointed one. Okay, that, the word that is originally used there, anointed one, is the same word that we get Messiah or Christ. So for 500 more years, the Jews waited for a Messiah, a leader a king in the line of David who would come and deliver the people from their oppressors. And in those 500 years, the Persians, the Greeks, and eventually the Romans end up coming in and and taking over. So with that as the background, okay, 500 years of exile, of of oppression from all these other rulers, this hope that an anointed one would come, this, this Messiah would come and lead them and, and bring them victory, okay? This is in their head. This is the coronation psalm that had been sung for 500 years. This is the coronation psalm that had been recited, and every Jew knew this, okay? So with all of that as the background, imagine the moment in the beginning of the New Testament. It was so important that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record it. Think of how the Jews would have interpreted this. At Jesus' baptism, he comes out of the water, and there's a voice from heaven saying, you are my son. So any and every Jew would recognize that this is a reference to Psalm 2. This is the coronation psalm. It'd be saying, it'd be like us, us saying, our Father who art in heaven. You know, for the last however many months, we've gone through the Lord's Prayer our Father who art in heaven. We kind of recognize it. We kind of get where it's, it's going. If you're, if you're at a Star Wars convention and you hear, Luke, I am your father, 
Like you know what's what the, you know what they're talking about here. Okay, you know you know where you're going if you're at, in that. Everyone would recognize this line: "You are my son." The Jews along the day, whoa, that's a voice coming from heaven? This is the anointed one. At Jesus' baptism, God was singing out of his own hymn book. God was quoting Psalm 2. He was saying that Jesus was his son, like David. He, Jesus, was the king. He's the Messiah. He's the anointed one. He was coming to save the Israelites. Now, they thought that that meant from the Roman oppressors, the political savior. At least that's what they thought. That's how it would have been understood. Good, the king is on his throne and he's going to overthrow our oppressors at the time. Obviously, the Romans. So, Jesus, son of God, is a reference to the establishment of the king who will rule and overthrow all enemies. So, as, as we know now, for 500 years, there had been talk and rumors of the Messiah coming. And various different individuals had also made that claim about themselves, and they were quickly defeated and thrown aside and whatever. But with Jesus, it was different. He displayed power from God through healing and casting out demons. People recognized that his teaching came with authority. The hype was growing throughout his ministry years, could he actually be the anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, the King of the Jews? So when Jesus is captured and he's questioned by Pilate, the question is, are you the King of the Jews? And Jesus is kind of cagey here. My kingdom is not of this world. And there's a lot of discussion in, in uh, John 17, John 18 of, of Jesus' kingship. They're trying to figure this out. And in John 19, 7, the, the Jewish leaders end up stating, we have a law and, and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. So if you claim to be the son of God, you're meaning I am the king. It's kind of like walking into... England and saying, I'm the king, and actually kind of going to overthrow her majesty, kind of was the sentiment. I am the king is kind of what was said. Jesus didn't necessarily make the claim, but he also didn't refute that claim. So anyways, the trial goes on, and uh, the sign that goes above Jesus' head on the cross is king of the Jews. Leaders, Jewish leaders wanted it to be that, that he claimed to be the king of the Jews. And to some people of that day, this was likely the end of all hope for the Jewish nation. The king of the Jews is now dying on the cross. Their king, Messiah, was dead. To some, it likely was the, basically the end of their faith in God. The Romans win. The Romans' gods must be more powerful than the Jewish gods. There would be no making the nations your inheritance. The Romans still ruled, and for many, hope was lost. But for the ultra-faithful Jews, they would continue to wait for the Messiah to come. And 
Some still do. Now, we know the rest of the story here. Jesus rose from the dead. The disciples witnessed the resurrected body, so they recognize that he isn't the king of the earth. He defeats death. Death was a sacrifice for sins. Sin, death is the real enemy. Jesus is alive, and he reigns forever as the Son of God, the true Son of God, the King of all creation, and not even death could defeat him. I'm not hearing an amen. Maybe I didn't give it enough, but whatever. That's... Some places it's like, hallelujah, amen. So this leads us to the third way to look at this psalm, and it's through the eyes of the New Testament after Jesus' resurrection. He appears to them, and he tells them that they will receive power from the Holy Spirit. That happens at Pentecost, and then Peter and John end up healing a man, and they end up getting called in for questioning. And then after a few threats and a few other uh, things happen there, uh, they're, they're released, and they gather back together. And here's what it says in, uh, in Acts uh, chapter 4. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voice together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth, the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David, going back a thousand years. And then if you look in your Bible, I don't think it's up on the screen, but it's like kind of in like a paragraph form. It's different formatted. And what does it say? Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Psalm 2. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God boldly. So what did they do after Jesus rose from the dead? They went back to their old hymn book, and they sang the old coronation song. But again, it made another twist. It made a new meaning. It was now a declaration that Jesus will rule forever. As you read uh, through the New Testament, you'll, you'll regularly hear Jesus being referred to as the Son of God. So, the, the book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark, starts, Mark 1.1, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. It was common because they knew Psalm 2. It gets quoted. The author of Hebrews uh, quotes it twice. Uh, chapter 1, he starts the, the book of Hebrews this way. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed over heir over all things, and through whom he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. 
After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became much superior to the angels as the name he inherited as superior to theirs. For which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have become your father? Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. The author of Hebrews is there quoting Psalm 2, 2 Samuel chapter 7, and again, going back to that old hymnal, but with a new twist. Finally, uh, John uh, sings from the old hymnal. He sings it with a new twist in the book of Revelation. He's quoting Jesus in, uh, in Revelation 2, 26-27, when he says, To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my Father. This is Jesus speaking about himself, telling the church of Thyatira that he is the Messiah, the King, the Son of God. And he's just using different words from that same psalm too. But again, it was so ingrained in their minds that they would have recognized, picked up on those, on those words from it. Revelation chapter 12, John has a vision of a woman giving birth who would rule with an iron scepter. Another reference to Jesus being king, but now with no power, not even death, able to defeat him. So throughout the New Testament, Psalm 2 is quoted, and Jesus is referred to as the Son of God, the King. This would be our understanding today. Jesus saves us from sin, from death. Death cannot defeat him. But the royal image in the New Testament actually doesn't just stop with Jesus. It carries on to us, to all who believe in him. John 1.12, yet to all who receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Paul in Romans 8 calls us co-heirs with Christ. We too have victory over sin because of Jesus. We share in the victory. We too overcome the world by faith in Jesus as King. So, 1 John 5 ends up saying it this way. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Anointed One, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands. And his commands are not burdensome, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. That is what we believe. We believe that Jesus has overcome the world and that we can have that victory, that we too are part of that, that royal lineage, that we too can be sons and daughters, princes and princesses of the King. This psalm is for us today. For those of us who believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the King, the Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One, 
In Christ, we overcome the world. His kingdom is not of this world. So, uh, some modern-day applications. What do we do with this? Uh, The warrior language of the Old Testament, for many people, is a real stumbling block. Um, And how, how do we sing this song today? What new twist? Do we put a new twist on it? Do we just leave it? as it is? Do we, how do we understand it? What does it look like to be faithful? It, really, it is worship Jesus. Like, that's the, that's the punchline here of the day. Like, worship Jesus. He's the king. In our, in our, I, I realize that we're at, at Canada Day, and, and uh, it's Canada Day weekend, and this is a really political psalm. I think it, I, we need to resist returning to the way that it was understood before Jesus came. Uh, this is more against the powers of the world, like greed and pride and selfishness, immorality, than it is against political leaders, the political leaders of Rome, Caesar, political leaders of our world, Trudeau, Putin, Biden. It's a psalm against the sin of our world, which is, that, that is what is against God. So how does God respond to those powers of the world, the powers that hold us down, sickness, death, immorality? He laughs. (laughs) He scoffs. They are not in control. Jesus is in control. We can trust in Jesus' power. Turn your hope, turn your trust into him. And follow him. Uh, the nations are our inheritance, a key line for us. God loves the world and wants us to live in his way, his love, his peace throughout the world. Love casts out fear. The ways of God will overcome the ways of the world. This, this promise of the nations is our inheritance goes back to an original promise that God made to Abraham the original covenant. His descendants would be a blessing to the nations. As, as non-Jews, uh, we're grafted into this promise and are to extend the blessing of God to our neighbors. Go love your neighbor. Declare God's word with boldness, like the early disciples did, singing out of the hymn book. They were shaken and just with boldness, go and declare that Jesus is king and live out his ways in our world. There is the warning here that I think we, we sometime overlook uh, in, our, in our modern day. Jesus is king and we need to worship him. Uh, there needs to be reverence. His, we need to remember that, that he is king. His anger and destruction, though, are not for his children. They are for those who are against him. They are for those who do not acknowledge him as king. For those of us who, who take refuge in him, who trust in him, who declare him to be king of their life, they will be blessed. So put your hope in Jesus. With that, let's uh, stand one more time. I'm going to conclude with, uh, with rereading Psalm 2. You have three different ways of it being understood. Uh, let's, 
listen to the word of the Lord and allow the Spirit to uh, work in our hearts and minds as we hear this psalm uh, in light of the, the New Testament understanding of Jesus is as, as King and Lord, the Messiah. Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, the Messiah, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he will be angry and your way will lead to destruction for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Please be seated. Blessings to you. 